Hello and welcome. My name is Mark. And my name is also Mark. And welcome to The Marketing Show. Uh, Before we start though, a little bit about us given it's our first ever podcast. Uh, We're a couple of marketing guys who are passionate about the craft and always hungry to learn more. So we're really excited to bring you along on our learning journey. And just to be clear, full disclosure, we are both called Mark. That is correct. Uh, Join us each week as we understand the principles that make businesses succeed. Each week, we'll lean into a marketing concept to uncover a new piece of puzzle. And on today's episode, we're talking about luxury marketing. Woo! <laughs> so luxury marketing, an elusive area of marketing, and it always feels so restricted to those sexy brands that many aspire to work on, yet few actually get the pleasure in doing so. However, today, uh, we are going to walk through some of the principles of luxury marketing, perhaps uncover some of the strategies that don't necessarily have to be restricted to those brands so that we can use them for whatever brand we work on. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it's um, it's an exciting area. It's maybe uh, not a marketing strategy that a lot of us throughout our marketing careers get to employ, but it'd be really great to dissect it and see what learnings we can take into different businesses. 100%. So first things first, uh, I think it'd be good just to dive into some of the consumer behaviors and I guess some of the underlying emotions that might drive a consumer to engage in this part of, of the market in luxury goods. So when I look at this, I, I feel like these consumers in, in this luxury space are, are very fickle um, when it comes to these goods because they're often willing to pay much more for products um, because of the brand name alone and what they perceive that brand name to, to actually mean. And I think there's a few reasons um, behind this, why they might pay more for certain brands. So first of all, assumed quality. I think this one goes without saying, people might think that they're getting a better quality product if they're spending lots and lots of money. Uh, But there's also peer pressure. So everyone who, it's the feeling that everyone who wears this brand is kind of cool and and part of society that I want to be part of. So there's there's an element of pressure because my friends are wearing it or the group, the peer group I have, have that. I want to be part of that. And it leads in really nicely to sort of keeping up appearances. So if I'm part of this peer group, Maybe I'm a trendsetter, I wear streetwear, I always have the latest and greatest. So you need to keep updating that wardrobe or those accessories with with what keeps coming out. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think um, part of that is around the social stratification of it, that you are presenting yourself as uh, someone that is uh, premium and uh, different to your peers. Um, and a part of that, I think, comes down to a few pillars of luxury marketing. One of them one of the most obvious ones being pricing, that it is difficult to access through price. Um, Another element um, is around limited distribution as well, is that you can only get these goods from certain places and both of those elements uh, make them harder to attain and in turn make you feel quite special in relation to your peers. Uh, Another really two interesting other pillars of luxury marketing as well will be uh, heritage. So the idea that you're buying into a, a long line of different products and stories um, that go associated with this brand and the different features and functions that they've developed over time. Um, and probably the last pillar on top of that is the country of origin, that because this is a very special product, it's made up of very exotic ingredients from very hard to reach places, um, whether that's from the depths of the Antarctic Ocean or uh, the amazing mountains of uh, Italy. Yes, 100%. And- and, you know, I think I'd add one more to that as well, which is I think a part of that country of origin and the, and the materials used, which is that special technology that you have that others don't. What's mm. that USP that makes you so much better than others? Yeah, definitely. Um, 
On top of those strategies, it's really interesting to look at re uh, as retail as still being the holy grail for marketing as well. Um, uh, when it comes to luxury marketing, uh, the retail stores are almost seen as like a temple uh, for people to come in. And it's one of those things that through their limited distribution, they're able to control uh, all aspects of the consumer experience and the consumer journey to make sure that the first time you engage with the product um, will be a really memorable and special experience as well. Um, well, it's interesting that you say that actually, because I, I had a recent experience of, of sort of this, the the limited distribution and the ownership of the channel and, and being part of that. And I think a brand that does it really well is, is Louis Vuitton. Uh, I was I was living in Singapore and, and there's this Louis Vuitton store there that I'd, I'd seen around. And after a few months, I was like, yeah, I've got to go check this thing out. I keep hearing about it. And what it is, is it's, it, it, it's its own island in Marina Bay that you access through the Marina Bay Sands Mall through an underwater tunnel. It sounds like a spy movie. Exactly. It's very cool. So, so it's very experiential. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people say that the, having these locations, these storefronts, um, even in a digital world, in an e-commerce driven world, it's very much like a temple to the brand and it's another arm of their promotion strategy. But going through this tunnel, there's an installation of the history of all of their clothes, all of their luggage and suitcases. And then when you get in the store itself, I mean, not only is the service exceptional and we can talk about that, but there's a whole wall of books like a little library and you can go and sit in there and just read about Louis Vuitton all these books written about them and, and their craft so I sort of I 100% get what you're saying about that experience yeah definitely and it's, it's fascinating that they can control that experience from the moment you walk in there as well to the books you're reading to being offered a glass of sparkling water that um, the fact that you can read books about the brand itself like makes you feel very special it makes the product feel very special as well and very very different I think Understanding that traditionally retail, um, because of the distribution networks, were such a key part of luxury marketing, it's interesting to see these brands develop and adapt to the growing levels of e-commerce as well. Um, some seem like they're doing it a lot better than others and adapting a lot quicker. Uh, one of the people that we looked into that are seen to be doing this transition really well is Gucci. Um, so, Mark, I went on to the Gucci website earlier today. Yeah, I'm, I'm on there every day, actually, oh, but oh, really? yeah, not cool. researching. I'm just, you know, just, just my brand. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I noticed your loafers and I was like, <laughs> I, I also need to have a pair of loafers. And when I was on the Gucci uh, website, I realized that they had a really high quality experience that I maybe wasn't used to seeing in a lot of other uh, e-commerce buying experiences they had this really high quality curation on the site and each uh, tile and panel added to this story that they were telling, um, whether it was for different collections or for different pieces, um, everything laddered up to this really holistic and premium experience. It kind of felt like I was flicking through a magazine or a storybook. Well, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because it, it's almost how these brands are coming into the 21st century and, and being able to keep up in this sort of this digitally driven world. And it's funny that you say that because it's almost, it's quite a challenge. How do you make that temple to the brand a digital experience? How do you make it a new .com? Exactly. And it was, it was fascinating to see that, understand that in the traditional retail temple, uh, their customer service and uh, is such a huge part of the relationship building process, and also such a huge part of the premium buying experience. 
And interestingly, they've started to adapt this onto their e-commerce website as well. So for example, they've actually uh, relabeled sometimes more traditional uh, functional parts of shopping online, um, such as gift wrapping or delivery. Um, and they've labeled those as exclusive services. So you have to click onto this button and we did that for these different features. Another example um, is around their contact FAQ and returns information. And instead they've actually rebranded that as how may me, how, how may we help you? Mm. Um, and they actually use the question mark in the uh, tile as well. Um, and that itself makes me, made me feel quite special when I was clicking on that as well, <laughs> that there was a phone number, there was a live chat and all these functional things were rebranded to make me feel like they were here to help me on my shopping journey. All they need now is a data-driven website that gives you a unique experience. So how can we help you, Mark? Oh, stop it. <laughs> I'll take both loafers <laughs> um, on two different credit cards. <laughs> but, but, but I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, the, there's that service that they they just can't give in a website the hey how are you can i get you a glass of water but what they can do is drive you into store and get you excited enough with their website to drive you back to that temple for the brand but i just want to touch on something you mentioned there which was uh was it exclusive services mm. uh which it sounds very much sort of like tailoring or made for you and and i think this is just a really interesting point around what luxury actually means for different markets and different people in those markets and i read some really interesting studies about this but they they say that there's two two forms of luxury so one is inward facing luxury and one is outward facing luxury so inward you see more in developed markets like australia so australia's had a really high standard of living lots of wealth for a long time so Luxury isn't about showing off a brand necessarily anymore, although I'm sure it occurs in certain parts of Sydney. And oh man, I feel like when you're showing off your luxury loafers. <laughs> just disclaimer, I'm not wearing Gucci loafers. Just... <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's that inward facing luxury. And I think examples of that, just to sort of let you know what I'm talking about is, so RM Williams boots, really high quality products. They're not really branded RM Williams anywhere that you'd see them in public but it's more about it's going to last me for 20 years. This is super high quality. I'm willing in, to invest in a good quality product that flatters me. And there's things like tailored suits. We're seeing a lot of those sort of startup tailored suit brands pop up a lot more. So that inward facing luxury, luxury of sort of flattering yourself is really more of a developed market concept. Whereas that outward facing luxury is, is much more of an emerging market. So it's, a, it's that real show of status and wealth and that I'm doing well. And they also say there's, you know, in a market like China, where the, the walls have come down to an extent for brands to get in. Now that they've come in, people are almost, you know, eyes are bigger than their stomach and they just want so much of this stuff because they're being restricted before. Mm. So it's a really interesting way to look at it across different markets. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting that both of those, uh, both those concepts help you feel um, special in some sort of way, whether that's inwardly or outwardly. Um, and that also inspires a sense of confidence and that confidence can come from an internal perspective or from a validation externally as well. And it's not to say that one is uh, more valid than the other, but it is really interesting to see how the different luxury brands are playing on that as well. Oh, it's very aspirational, isn't it? It's very emotional, all of this marketing that they do. Exactly. And I think it touches on a really important point as well is that um, these brands can't be seen as special uh, without there being a core or a foundation of different brands uh, to play off as well. Mm. That might be within uh, their own brand where they ha might have core product offerings that might be their base models, uh, which then ladder up to their more premium and luxury offerings. 
um, or it might just be other brands within their category which also make the same products but don't have the same experience or the ingredients or the same feel as well. Mm, There's always that comparison to, to make people understand why they should pay more for something that's more premium. You need to have something else to compare to that base range. Exactly. And it's, it's really interesting to see the strategies of the way that they uh, develop their relationship with consumers over longer periods of time that in order for a luxury brand to grow, they also need to look at the people that aren't purchasing their brand. Because if they have a larger uh, larger platform of people that aren't purchasing but are aware and want the brand, it'll help the people that can afford and can purchase the brand now realize that it is a special and a wanted and limited item and want them to purchase it straight away. I think it's, yeah, you're really speaking about, uh, I guess, a duality of, of the marketing that they do because the, the really good brands recognize who their core consumer is and the, the famous sort of stat is that Louis Vuitton sells 80% of its its volume of goods to 20% of its customer base so they have that really loyal base that they need to keep engaged but as you said customer acquisition is super important because eventually those customers are going to go away and you need to keep bringing fresh blood in through the brand and it's really interesting to see the ways that they're actually doing this yeah definitely and it's it's fascinating to compare that to something like a lemonade stand on the corner that um, a lemonade stand might be more uh, involved in selling lemonade to a person walking by, by on the street and building that relationship straight away for a shorter period of time uh, whereas these luxury brands need to be building these relationships for a really long period of time because people move through different stages of their life where they can come to a point where they can afford and can purchase a limited product. It, yeah, it's um, if you think about the acquisition cost uh, for customers in this yeah. industry, it must be extremely high because you know these can be one-off purchases sometimes. And I, I always, when I think luxury, I think to watches because mm. watches are one of those things that, what does it do? It tells the time. How much did you pay for it? Well, that's anywhere between $5 and, and $500,000 or more. So there, there's really sort of, uh, it can be a very expensive one-off purchase. And how do you get these people in? And, you know, we spoke about the the storefront and the temple to the to the brand. And, you know, these guys, when you walk into a watch shop, they, they're handing you a glass of water. You can eat something. You can, you know, they'll, they'll tell you every detail about the watch, the people that work there. It's pretty amazing. And, and they know that you probably won't buy a watch that time, but the investment is worth it for that lifetime value. It really is. And, and some of these items, especially watches, are really important to consider the, the lifetime value of them. That um, I think it's Patek Philippe that have a campaign where you're buying into a generation. So when you're, yeah, buying, when, this, yeah. Yeah, when you're buying one watch, you're not actually just buying it for yourself you're buying it for uh, multiple generations of people that will come after you that you will hand the watch down to. So by having multiple owners of the item, the customer lifetime value almost spans over multiple mm. customers over multiple lifetimes. Yes. So it is really important for them to build that relationship up front um, and also understand how they can continue to build that relationship and why these things such as uh, the retail experience and the shopping experience and also having such education uh, education around the ingredients that go into the product um, are really important for luxury brands. I think from a funnel point of view, you spend a lot of time in that top part of the funnel, funnel with the awareness and engagement and education and, and all of that. And really, you don't have to do too much more of nudging down the funnel because once you have people in there, 
someone might not be able to afford that luxury good right now but you can still engage them in the brand through content, through education, things that they can read, and they can start to feel a bit of an identity with the brand. And then that one day that they have the money saved up to purchase something, or maybe they have to pay it, I don't know, um, they, they almost take themselves down the funnel. They know where to get it, they know where to go, and they know how much it costs. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think um, there's a lot that we can learn from some of these principles and fundamentals of luxury marketing. and how we might be able to apply them to, to different brands and different businesses. Um, one of the, the businesses we were talking about, Mark, is actually Uniqlo and how yes. Uniqlo have uh, started to take some of these elements of luxury marketing and have used that to, to build and grow their own brand, which from the outside might not really seem like a luxury brand. It's it's really, really fascinating what Uniqlo do. And, and when I'm not wearing Gucci, I'm wearing Uniqlo. <laughs> um, I really love this brand because I think what they do is, is yeah, as I said, fascinating. So the story of this brand was that they were a really small um, clothes brand in Japan. They had like a $2 shop on a side street. Uh, I think it was in Shinjuku. And, and the perception of the brand was it's cheap and therefore not good quality. So it was, you'd go there to buy cheap stuff, but you wouldn't purchase clothes from there thinking these are going to last me a long time or going to flatter me in some way. Uh, and what the, the founder did was he recognized this perception and he wanted to shift it. So he rented out a three-story shop front in Harajuku, the, the, the really premium shopping district. And he then fitted out the store to be a premium experience. So, you know, lots of staff that, that welcome you when you get there and everything's laid out really nicely. Uh, and that did change his perception. It was quite successful. And now we've seen that roll out across the globe. Uh, and, and I think they've sort of taken that first step of luxury marketing and rolled it out to their total strategy of how they actually market their brand. Because if you look at, first of all, the, their product. So they have a differentiated product based on quality, but also based on technology. So they've got that core range of, of all the normal stuff you can buy, but then they have the, is it the Supima? Supima cotton, yeah. their airisms, their really specific Uniqlo innovations that build off their core range. Exactly. So already you're starting to see the, the bones of a real luxury brand without the price point, which, which, is, which is really cool. So, and you look at how they actually bring the message or their communication to the market and they do classic luxury marketing. So they sponsor Roger Federer now. So they've got him for whenever he's on the court, he's wearing Uniqlo uh, branded tennis gear. Uh, which I'm sure cost an absolute bomb. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they stole him from Nike, so I can only imagine. And it's interesting about Roger Federer as a choice as well, is that when you look at some of the archetypes of luxury marketing sponsorships, um, especially when it comes to uh, male figures, that Roger Federer almost embodies a lot of the similar marketing, uh, luxury marketing characteristics. He's very composed, he's very regal, he's very calm and almost gentlemanly. Um, and it's almost similar to like George Clooney and... Nespresso or George Clooney and Rolex or George Clooney and potentially 7-Eleven one day but but yeah it's, it's fascinating that their, their choice in, in person is always someone that I, I would argue is someone that is quite aspirational or at least someone I personally quite look up to a lot I think that's it you know usually with these these brands you aspire to, to own the good that they sell and that might take a lifetime to get there to, to be able to afford it but you're really buying into that aspiration of what is the type of person you want to be and how this good sort of unlocks it um, for you. And, and to put a, a human face 
to that aspiration, I think is really powerful because it, it solidifies it in people's minds of, of the type of person they want to be. It also makes the brand really human, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so yeah, Uniqlo is fascinating in that sense. And, and I think one of the really cool things about Uniqlo is that uh, they're not only great at the luxury marketing stuff with the technologies that they have, but they've also taken this sort of collaboration uh, theme that's been going on with luxury brands over the last few years. So we know Louis Vuitton and Supreme sort of almost getting down into the younger audience's uh, mindset with streetwear. Uniqlo sort of flipped that on its head and gone, well, we've got the, the cheaper stuff, but we're going to do a collaboration with Alexander Wang and, and bring in that more luxury goods mm. uh, person who can, who can come in and then see the rest of the Uniqlo range as that sort of leader strategy to get them in. Uh, and then they stay there, hopefully, because of the quality. So I think it's interesting they've been able to do that as well. Yeah, it's, and it's fascinating to see that the broad range of collaborations they can tap into, like you mentioned Alexander Wang, which is fascinating that they can draw from the top down a little mm. bit. Um, and also like they have collaborations with people like Lego and Cause is another uh, mm. streetwear activist. Like uh, it's fascinating the ways that they're able to flex their brand and because they have such a strong base and such a strong core, that they're able to do that in different ways. Um, another really uh, important aspect of Uniqlo's luxury marketing tactics are their distribution methods. So understanding that scarcity and limited distribution is a core pillar of luxury marketing you can only really buy Uniqlo from Uniqlo stores yeah. or Uniqlo online. Um, and it's fascinating that uh, they tend to control their entire customer service experience. So from the moment you walk into any Uniqlo store, you are greeted. Um, you are made to feel quite special. Uh, and as you walk around the store, everything is really well laid out. There's lots of different information that you can read and are presented with of the different innovations and different product lines that they have. Like I remember when... I walked past the uh, airism line of undergarments. Like I felt like I was going to be a superhero if I put on this undershirt and uh, underpants. Like I probably felt like I was going to fly. Yeah, you just need to put them on the outside. That's the thing. Oh, that, that, yeah. that was yeah. yeah that, 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 <laughs> I, that's, I think I misunderstood the innovation. <laughs> um, but it's really fascinating that, that you, um, through those limited distribution channels, that when I go into Uniqlo, all of my experience with Uniqlo has been consistent. Mm. They really tick that box of the experience. We, we talked about what shops you go in and they give you a glass of water and talk to you about the brand and the materials. I think Uniqlo do the same thing in their own way. They, they greet you, they make you feel welcome, they make you feel like you want to buy this stuff. And then the service is there as well. So you get free, uh, your pants get taken up for free yeah. within an hour of your purchase, which I think is super cool. Um, and, and, you know, all they're missing now is the Louis Vuitton library, the Uniqlo library, where you can sit and read about the brand. And I, I think people would actually do it. I, I think I would. I'd definitely spend an <laughs> afternoon. Maybe we're just nerds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, another really important aspect of Uniqlo's luxury marketing strategy is their country of origin. So understand that they make really high quality basic products, but those ingredients and those innovations are also coming from Japan. So when it comes to the Uniqlo story, you also understand you're buying something from a foreign country and that maybe does things a little bit differently to the basics and the different styles of clothing that you're used to buying locally. Mm. Um, so to me, at least when I buy some Uniqlo products, I feel there's an element of it being a little bit special from that as well. Exactly. I think that they have that sort of precision and innovation uh, sort of background that goes with anything from Japan. And I think touching on this core, their core offering and, and why it's so special, it's really clever because this is something that they've been able to do. They've got luxury marketing, but then they have this core range, which 
actually is differentiated from all of the other competitors, so H&M and Zara, because if you think about it, they sell the same stuff year round. So they have slight tweaks, different colors, but really they're like the FMCG of, of, of fashion. So they've got the same chinos, the same business shirts, polos, shorts, all of that never changes. Uh, it just updates along the way, which means they get all of the volume through their factories and, and they get the, the really great sort of margins on those clothes I'm imagining versus their competitors who are trying to keep up with fashion trends. What's the latest outside of, uh, out of Paris Fashion Week and how do we now trickle that down into our store and change it every season? It's hugely expensive, huge business waste as well. And we know that fast fashion is a real problem environmentally. Exactly, yeah. So I, it's really clever that Uniqlo has sort of been able to get both ends of the, that luxury marketing side, but still have that really strong core business, which is you know so much better differentiated to their to their competitors. Yeah, no, definitely, and I think um, within opera, uh, within branding operating amongst their their portfolio, it's also interesting to, to tie it back to the concept of the external versus the internal traits of uh, of luxury marketing as well. So understand that some of their products are starting to show the Uniqlo brand. Some of their sporting goods, when they are sponsoring certain athletes, are showing the Uniqlo logo. And that itself is starting to build awareness of the brand and also an aspirational element of the brand. Mm. But some of them also um, don't have any branding. And for the most part, a lot of Uniqlo clothing doesn't have any branding. But there's an internal sense of confidence that you're getting something that is of really high quality and that you feel quite confident when you wear it. I think that the branding is almost they look good. And, and yeah. so I guess you want, they want to build that association of, wow, those pants look like they fit really well. They must be Uniqlo. <laughs> no, definitely. I, think I mean, that's what I think when I see a, a nice pair of slacks. Uh, <laughs> but, but so really, really interesting stuff about how Uniqlo has been able to take these luxury marketing strategies to sell what is a pretty cheap product. They're, they're not at a price premium to their competitors. Um, but you know, there's an example of a business that was able to take one element or, or one use an activation to distill some of these luxury marketing tactics to drive their proposition and improve their image. And that was pay less shoes in the States. Yeah. Case study I was looking at, which was they they sort of had come across an issue with their brand, which was they were just perceived as being cheap and therefore not good quality, very similar to Uniqlo. And and what they did is instead of starting to launch themselves as a luxury brand with with their strategy they just had an activation where they set up a massive shop front in la you know on the really expensive shopping strip and they branded their their brand palessi not payless so they changed it the name they said that it was an italian new designer brand they invited all these influencers to this launch event uh, and then they they put the same shoes on the shelf but changed the name obviously and changed the price so the price went from 20 bucks to a thousand dollars uh, and people actually bought into this. So people bought the shoes for $1,000. They really bought into the product, into the stories about it, where it was made, the Italian design, all of this. And all of this was true for Payless. These are all things about the brand which they weren't making up. It's just that they weren't perceived to be of high quality. So by taking this strategy of, we're gonna build this temple to the brand, we're gonna have everyone come in, we're gonna rebrand the name, we're gonna make the price expensive. They were actually able to prove that the underlying product quality was super strong and change that perception. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating example of um, the ways in which we, we, which we view brands and also the fact that, you know, regardless of your portfolio or regardless of the brand that you own or, or work on or the business you run, you can take some of these strategies and, and pick and choose ones that will help you grow. Mm. Yes, exactly. I think um, 
there's there's one other element that we haven't touched on yet with with designer brands and and i think it's sort of innate with with a lot of this stuff or with these luxury brands and that's sort of this product quality that almost exceeds it definitely exceeds expectation but also exceeds what you will do with it so what i'm talking about here is rolex sell a watch called the sea dweller which goes 300 meters underwater it can work 300 meters so that watch who's going to actually take it 300 meters down i don't know I like know. not many people right but a lot of people buy it who wouldn't go that deep but then they launched a special edition which was in conjunction with james cameron going really deep for some mission that he was doing in, in this submarine thing and and that went 3900 feet deep so extremely deep and no one's ever going to go that deep except maybe james cameron and a couple of others but it's all about having this product quality that it's so aspirational but you probably won't even get to that aspiration. It's just to show how far they can go. And I, I think it's a really important part of these products. Yeah, definitely. And I think that um, in doing that, it's helping you build your own personal brand and your own personal story. And that by potentially buying into a luxury product like that, especially something that's so high end, uh, you yourself might feel like uh, you can achieve something like that as well, which is really important. Um, another really important element of that is that by having the really, really, really deep sea uh, James Cameron mm -hmm. version of the Rolex, it almost, it's almost like if, if they can develop that technology, it will also trickle down to the rest of their Rolex watches as well. So by buying into a, a normal uh, Rolex uh, deep sea watch, you might infer by the fact that they have this really high-end version of the same model, that that 300 meter one will also perform really, really well. It's almost like the case of Mercedes um, and uh, their... AMG series and their Formula One racing cars. By developing all this amazing Formula One technology and promoting it on the Formula One circuit, you'll infer that through the rest of the Mercedes range, that Formula One technology will continue to trickle down. Yeah, and you're buying that Mercedes hatchback at, at an entry level and the price is still twice the price of a Toyota. So you're really, you're really banking on that sort of technology that's flowing through. Exactly it. And it's, it, it's those elements of product quality which will also help you have that differentiation as well. So really interesting that some other brands can just operate on product quality alone and still remain maybe a middle tier or um, a lower base brand. But it's interesting to see that there are opportunities to leverage that into a specific advantage as well. Definitely. So we've talked a lot about brands that are out there that are doing some really cool stuff with, with luxury marketing. But what about brands that haven't done it yet? Have you, have you noticed any that you think actually there's an opportunity there for you to drive that product quality perception through a luxury marketing strategy? Uh, look, there, there is a meat pie uh, company and uh, and restaurant which I am very fond of and I think that they could definitely uh, benefit through through some of these strategies um, it's a it's only called Carrie's Cafe de Wheels so for those that are not familiar Carrie's Cafe de Wheels is a uh, meat pie stand and store which has a few different distribution points around Sydney but one of the really interesting elements of the brand is that they have a really strong heritage and this amazing story uh, on top of that, if you look at meat pies across Australia, uh, they tend to be more of a commodity-based product um, and maybe aren't, don't really, aren't really seen as something of really high quality. Mm. So Harry's actually creates this really amazing differentiated meat pie with different toppings and different base ingredients that make it seem really special. And you can only get it from these different places. Um, the only trick is, is that they haven't maybe worked out their pricing as well as they could have by potentially charging a higher premium price and portraying their story of their brand a little bit more 
they could maybe tap into the luxury meat pie market and mm. make it seem a little bit more high end, but leverage that to grow their business even more. Yeah, that that's a great one actually. I hadn't thought of that, and I haven't had a Harry's in in a couple of years. Going after this, yeah. Why are we recording over lunch? Not <laughs> 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 a bad idea. Um, no, but that, that's a really interesting one. I, I think um, it, it makes you look around and, and go, you know, there are so many examples of, of brands where they've even they've either touched on it and it's just not in a way that you'd think of luxury marketing, but it works, or or they could. And I think some other brands that do touch on it a little bit is uh, yesterday I went into a store called uh, Uncle Tetsu's Cheesecakes and Cheese Fantastic. and when I really thought about that I was like these guys are actually kind of luxury because they have this core technology or product which is differentiated from market I don't know if you've seen these cheesecakes but they're like these sort of wobbly jelly cheesecakes and they're delicious but there's nothing else like it and the cheese tarts are the same they're the best cheese tarts they're sort of that sweet savory mix and it's just awesome but um yeah. but the, the way they've done it is so they've limited their distribution in their distribution channels so there's only a few of these stores around there's quite a lot in asia but there's only one in australia and that's in sydney uh many countries in southeast asia still don't have them so even i know in indonesia there's one and it's one of those things that you hear about it and you sort of see it on the internet and and if you go to a country or a city where this exists you go there it's part of the attraction of going to some places um, so I think that they are a great example of, of you know, a, a small food brand, you know, that doesn't charge that much for its products. They are at a premium. It's about $3 for a tart and $20 for a small cake. So mm. they're not that cheap, but they've been able to differentiate in a sort of luxury way. And I think a really interesting part of uh, Uncle Tetsu's as well is, is uh, once you leave the store that people are, are seen with the bags walking mm. around quite a lot as well. So it taps into that uh, external motivation for buying the Uncle Tetsu's cheesecake is that you're seen as someone that purchases from there as well. And that you're almost like in the know and that you know about this amazing product quality as well. Yes. So and, and you're also in the store as well. You see it's an experience because you go in the store and you see the, the products being made. So they're almost like their Uncle Tetsu cheesecake chefs there and you see them in the background making the cheesecakes and making the fresh ones off the line and it's just fascinating. So they're really not putting it behind closed doors like a McDonald's or something where it's it's really about not the product quality but more about just getting you to have a lot of it. It's, it's really sort of embracing and celebrating the, the process that makes the cheesecake, like a lot of other luxury goods. Exactly. And I think that a really interesting element that you've touched on there as well is that um, McDonald's maybe don't talk about the country of origin or their product quality as much. They might talk about the function of their product, which will be the taste, but they might not actually talk about the different ingredients themselves. By Uncle Tetsu putting out all their ingredients and talking about how premium they are at every step of the process and also involving you as a consumer on every step of the process of your cheesecake being made, it's almost similar to the way uh, a watch manufacturer teaches you and uh, walks you through the hand make makings of mm. the watch you're going to buy. Um, that you know each of the different ingredient, uh, each of the different parts that make up your watch. At what part are they uh, all put together? Um, and when your watch is going to be ready as well. So mm. it's interesting to see how they've transferred something that could be of a lower involvement of just buying a cheesecake mm. into something that is a little bit more high end and something you're looking forward to and taking a lot of pleasure and joy out of. 100%. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, let us know if you uh, guys have any questions on luxury marketing. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a truly fascinating sort of part of the marketing world. And it's been, it's been awesome researching it. I feel like I've learned a lot. And yeah, hopefully yeah. we can apply some of this to, you know, brands that other people work on and businesses and help them sort of thrive. Yeah, definitely. 
Uh, now, Mark, uh, as marketers, I think it's always important for us to stay curious in the world um, and that we are still operating as marketers within the universe um, and not just behind our computer screens. So uh, what have you been learning this week? What, what, what have you found interesting? Yeah, so uh, something I saw this week, and I just think this is hilarious, um, is McDonald's lost uh, the rights to use the Big Mac uh, phrasing or word, their trademark on Big Mac in Europe. And I'm not a legal person, so I don't quite know the details of how that happens because you'd think that that would be theirs. But that, all I know is they were trying to sue another company that set up a burger chain called Supermac. And then through that process, they got exposed in not actually having the right trademark or being able to claim the trademark for Big Mac. And, and what Burger King did in Sweden, so local market activation, was they changed all of their menus from you know Whopper, Whopper Junior, chicken, whatever, to like a Big Mac but better, or Big Mac but flame grilled, or Big Mac with chicken, and things like that. So they they took right, that and they, yeah, exactly. It's almost like the the Cola Wars. They're really poking it into McDonald's, but they're also trying to highlight their product quality by saying things like with chicken or flame grilled, etc. And I thought I just thought that was awesome. No, definitely, it's um. <laughs> It's, it's very tongue-in-cheek and, and very direct. And it is interesting to see when, when people do capitalize on such a trend like that in a really short amount of time. Um, something I found interesting this week is being quite personal. Um, I, it's, it's a new year, new me. Um, and I've been re- reading a lot of books. Uh, and within that, I've, I've re- been reading a little bit of Tony Robbins. Uh, in that he has been preaching the, uh, the virtues of having cold showers. So, wow. I'm up to 10 days of cold showers now uh, in a row every morning. So um, uh, you don't have to say anything, Mark, but I, I think it's safe to say that my skin looks very radiant right now. I did wonder why you were wearing a jacket on a 28 degree <laughs> day. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was obscure, but no, you're looking fresh. Thank you. Uh, it's It's been an interesting tool to, to use every day. Yeah, so why are you doing this? I, it's honestly, it feel pretty good. Like, yeah, yeah feel, feel feel quite amazing from it. I feel like it's, uh, uh, it's a great tool to have in your back pocket and and it's a new experience it's a new challenge to have every day to, to start the day off with a little bit of a win a little bit of a personal mm. win um and uh needless to say i feel like it's giving me even more energy than normal which i is, i'm not really sure yeah. if it's a good thing i don't know if you need that <laughs> i guess it's kind of like skydiving in a way because skydiving is you get so close to death that you feel great afterwards right because the adrenaline yeah. gets pumping but then you're still alive and i guess Maybe having a cold shower is like you torture yourself for a bit, but you're happy you survived after. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it. It's uh, it's interesting just to, to learn how to reframe what could potentially be a negative experience into a positive experience. Uh, and I think that's something we can also almost tap into the marketing world as well is that um, oftentimes we have to change our perceptions to different problems we're facing on brands and also different business challenges we're having. And if you can, uh, in the morning, already practice that reframing and different ways of thinking and looking at different situations um it's almost like you're setting your whole day forward to to look at challenges in a different way wow very deep yeah very deep i'm gonna start taking cold showers (laughs) (laughs) i need it yeah who knows i I think i think i'll keep doing it until i uh until i get the flu but um we'll we'll, we'll, we'll keep going with it i'd like to see how you're going when winter rolls around yeah exactly it was we'll, we'll um we'll have to keep me accountable on the podcast uh, anyway, guys, uh, that's it for us this week. Uh, thank you for, for joining us on yes. our learning journey. Yes, no, it's been an absolute pleasure and looking forward to seeing you all next week. Bye. Sayonara.